If you'll take your copy of God's Word and turn to Revelation chapter 7. The element of surprise is an essential element in what has come to be known as the art of warfare. I'm not sure art's a good word to use to describe it, but the element of surprise is essential in success. And that's been true throughout the ages. So if you just think of for a minute about some of these you might be familiar with, some of them you might not. When Rome fell in 410 A.D., it was because of a surprise attack. Slaves rebelled and aligned themselves with the Visigoths, and the walls of Rome were breached. And not only was the city sacked and destroyed, but Rome itself fell. The whole, the whole Roman government fell. They had no idea it was coming, but they should have. Same thing could be said for what we know as Washington crossing the Delaware in Christmas of 1776. The Haitians on the other side of the river never expected 2,400 continental troops to come across that frozen river, but they did. And what it proved then was that there really was no army that was completely, completely undefeatable, all right? Given the right circumstances, any army could be beaten. France fell in 1940 to Hitler and the Nazis. They should have seen it coming, but they didn't. And Hitler did not have really in-depth, historians tell us, he didn't have in-depth intelligence. He simply knew what everybody else knew about the French, about their army, about their borders, and about how it could be taken. And so it fell. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in 1940 changed the shape of our country, and indeed it changed the shape of the world. And it proved then, and I think to some degree, that aspect of, of, of who we are as a nation, you know, that war demonstrated that you cannot go far enough to be away from the reach of the American military. Now, that has been called into question even with some of the things that we've seen happen to our armed forces and indeed our country on 9-11. What happened in December of 1942 and what happened on September 11th are very similar in one sense. Folks had been saying for a long time, the Twin Towers are a terrorist target. And, and, and those who are involved in the intelligence community had warned that Al-Qaeda could attack those twin towers. And yet it seems that we were caught flat-footed. We could have seen it coming, right? We could have. So, one, armed, one army historian, one military historian says this, that most of these attacks, he says, are based on knowledge obtained from open sources, not secret intelligence. And the analysis underlying the plan rested largely on suppositions about the enemy's standard operating procedures. So these enemies that attacked, whether it was the Visigoths, whether it was the Japanese, whether it was the Nazis, they knew the standard operating procedure of their enemy and took advantage of that. This historian said this, rarely are such affairs complete and total surprises. In hindsight, it often emerges that the indicators for an attack were present but overlooked. There is 
a great day coming, we're seeing in the book of Revelation. And what we have seen in, in the text that we looked at before in Revelation chapter 6, and if you want to turn there, let's just look at it for a second. What we have seen in Revelation chapter 6 is there's a lot of people that are caught flat-footed, unprepared, not ready for what's unfolding before them. It says the sky vanished like a scroll and is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling on the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come. And who can stand? Who can stand? Find a cave. Find a place to hide. Find some place where you can get away from from what's coming. And they were caught flat-footed and surprised. But should not have been. Because what we've seen throughout Revelation, pointing back all the way to the Old Testament, pointing back all the way to the prophets, looking back in Matthew and, and in Mark and in Luke at what Jesus said about the end times, these things we should have seen coming. We don't know the details well enough to know exactly when, but we have some things that we can look to and kind of have an idea that we're in those last days, right? That's, that's what we've been seeing. Here's what we can know for absolute certain, all right? We talked about this in our membership class Friday night. We had a, a one of our one of our membership classes, and um, we were actually looking at the Baptist faith and message, our our doctrinal statement within the Southern Baptist Convention. In the Baptist faith and message, in section ten, here's what it says about last things. Okay, God in His own time and in His own way will bring the world to the appropriate end. According to His promise, Jesus Christ will return personally and visibly in glory to the earth. All the dead will be raised, and Christ will judge all men in righteousness. The unrighteous will be consigned to hell, the place of everlasting punishment. The righteous in their resurrected and glorified bodies will receive their reward and will dwell forever in heaven with the Lord. We know that will be the case, right? We may not know, well, not, not a may, we don't know all the details. We don't know every little detail that's a part of this. Here's the other thing that we can know with absolute certainty. The question raised at the end of chapter 6 is answered. Who can stand? Who will be able to stand? Who will not need to find a cave that in the end will be useless? Well, the answer is given for us there. In that great day when the wrath of the Almighty God and the Lamb are poured out, then we see that there are those who are sealed from God's wrath. Marked and protected. And they're the ones who will come through the storm of God's judgment standing. Okay? So let's read it. Let's just look at chapter 7. I had originally, when I worked through my outlines and my schedule for preaching through the book of Revelation, had naively thought, I'll preach chapter 7 in one sermon. That ain't happening. Okay, that's not happening. All right. And the more I've worked on it, <laughs> the more I'm not sure we'll do it in two. But I, that's the plan. Okay, that's the plan. All right. But let's look at it. Who can stand? That's the question. 
Verse 1 in chapter 7 says, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who were being given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh. 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon. 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar. 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun. 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph. 12,000 of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now let's go and read just a little bit further. All right? And after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word today. It's, it's, it's again, just an amazing part of Scripture, Lord, that um, we'll, we'll work through it, Lord, as your Holy Spirit leads us. Father, help us to see um, your amazing grace in this, I pray. And we thank you for that amazing grace. And we do in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, let's, I'm not going to take these verses necessarily in order as we start. Let's start first with the 144,000 elephants in the room, okay? Let's just start there, all right? And there's a lot of questions, interpretational questions about this portion of chapter 7 as there are a lot of other sections in the book of Revelation, okay? So who are these 144,000 that are mentioned here, okay? And is that 144,000 144,000? Is that a literal number or is it a, a symbolic number like so many numbers that we see in apocalyptic literature, throughout apocalyptic literature, Daniel and Ezekiel and, yes, here in Revelation? Is it 144,000 or something else? Is this 144,000 made up of these tribes of physical descendants of Abraham, physical Israel, physical Jews? Or is it instead maybe a more spiritual, symbolic understanding of the whole church made up of Gentiles and Jews together? Those are, those are questions about this section, about this 144,000. And those are questions that legitimate, not legitimate, that absolutely biblically solid conservative pastors and theologians and teachers are going to differ in their answers. 
Men and women who love the Lord, love his word, see his word as inerrant and infallible, do not agree on what this is a picture of and what these numbers mean and who these people are. Well, what about those folks that come and knock on your door with their Watchtower magazine? They think they've got the 144,000 figured out, okay? Jehovah's Witnesses believe that it is a literal 144,000 of what they call the faithful elect or the, quote, anointed class. And only those who were born from 33 A.D. through today, no one before, is qualified or eligible to be a part of this anointed class, as Jehovah's Witnesses call it. Everybody else just hopes that they'll be a part of what they call the other sheep or the great crowd that will be a part of the redeemed earth. So only 144,000 will go to heaven. Everybody else is, is on the renewed earth. I would encourage you in regard to these kinds of questions, whether it's from Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or any other sect or cult or world religion, to check out the North American Mission Board website. It is the best site that I know of for apologetic questions and discussions, okay? And on that, it says... And, and by the way, we as Christians reject that view, okay? Just, just want to make sure you understand that. We reject that view. The website says, and I quote from it, The Watchtower Doctrine of the Duality of Saved People, and that's what it is, there's two kinds of saved people, is not supported by Scripture. The Bible makes no distinction between two classes of saved people. In Revelation 7 and 14, both the 144,000 and the great crowd or multitude before the throne are all born-again Christians living forever in heaven. John 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe in Him. Right? That's, there's no distinction there. And Jesus said in John 14, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to Myself, that where I am there you may be also. Not you, just a few, but everybody. So, we'll dismiss that, okay? Not Watchtower. Not Jehovah's Witnesses. Don't buy their magazines, okay? Do not take them even, all right? That's just an aside. Now, that being said, again, faithful conservative theologians and pastors are not going to agree, not going to agree on, on how this. There is, as I referred to a few weeks ago, a futurist interpretation, okay? A futurist interpretation is a faithful biblical view of this. You might not agree with it, but you're faithfully looking at the word when you see it as saying that, okay, I have a position on this based on that perspective. Now, that futurist position sees everything from Revelation chapter 4 onward as in the future, okay? Future for John as he wrote it, future for the churches there as they received it, and future for us. And those who hold this view... Sometimes they're called dispensational premillennialist. They see in John chapter, excuse me, in Revelation chapter four, when John is shown the open door into heaven and he is taken up into heaven, they see that as a picture of the rapture of the church, and that everything that takes place after that is what's happening in the rest of human history. All right, through the tribulation, the great tribulation, through that seven-year period, and that moment that the church is raptured out begins that process. And then they also hold that, for the most part, that this 144,000 that we see here is a literal number 
And that is a literal number of those physical descendants of Abraham. Okay? Physical Jews, physical, physical descendants of Abraham. And that what is going to happen later on through the book of Revelation is the Gentiles who have not been reached coming to faith. All right? So the 144,000 is Jewish. This great multitude that no one can number is Gentile. They're not the same group. It's not the same. All right? So now John MacArthur holds to this view. All right? Let me just read from John MacArthur's commentary on Revelation. All right? I'll just read you not a lot, just this. These Jewish believers, talking about the 144,000, these Jewish believers and evangelists are the first fruits of Israel, which as a nation will be redeemed before Christ returns. The 144,000 are not all Jewish believers at the time, but a unique group selected to proclaim the gospel in that day. The term Israel must be interpreted in accordance with its normal Old and New Testament usage as a reference to the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Nor, Dr. MacArthur says, is there any exegetical reason not to interpret the numbers 144,000 and 12,000 literally. Okay? So that's, that's Danny Aiken, Dr. Aiken kind of holds that same view. He says in his commentary, I remain convinced the 144,000 sons of Israel represent Jewish believers who are included in the one people of God and the great multitude of Revelation 7-9. So, so Dr. Aiken says that 144,000 is a part of that great multitude. All right? Now, granted, Scripture speaks of, and we can look forward to, a great revival among Israel, among the Jews. All right. Now we may we, we may differ on how that's going to come about and what it will entail. The Old Testament book of Zechariah in chapter twelve, verse ten says, "I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son." Paul. In Revelation, excuse me, in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11, goes into great detail to talk about God's purposes for the Jews, God's purposes for Israel. Toward the end of, Revel- of Romans, I keep doing that, Romans, it's Romans, Gerald. Toward the end of Romans 11, he says, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as is written. The deliverer will come from Zion, and he will turn godliness, godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. There will be a turning among Israel to Jesus. And to this I say amen. I'm, I'm excited about that, okay? Another position held by equally, equally faithful, conservative interpreters sees this 144,000 as made up of Jews and Gentiles. That it's a picture of the church, not just the redeemed from Israel. Okay? And these Old Testament tribal designations are just to show that the church is making up the new Israel. Okay? The new redeemed of God, the new covenant people under the new covenant and not the old covenant. Let me let me read you a passage out of Isaiah. If you want to turn to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah chapter 19. This is an amazing section. I love this. Verse 
starting in verse um, starting verse 18. Isaiah 19:18. In that day there will in that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. And when they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship and make sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. And they will return to the Lord and he will listen to their pleas for mercy. And he will heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. And Assyria will come into Egypt. And Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. So this picture of these Gentile pagan nations turning to God and coming to worship him. Is this picture of of God's grace being extended to these. Being extended to, to those who do not know him. Jerome read the passage in Ephesians, but what follows that passage in Ephesians is this beautiful picture of how God is working to bring the Gentiles and the Jews together. Okay, he says, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter two, starting in verse 11, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hand. So. The Jewish people were referred to the Gentiles as uncircumcised. Verse 12, he says, remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, he has created that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostilities down there in verse 19. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Paul would later say in the book of Galatians. All of you who are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you all are in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. So, some hold that this 144,000 is a picture of the church. A picture of those redeemed both from Israel and the Gentiles who've been brought into God's kingdom. And they see that number as symbolic, as a lot of numbers in the book of Revelation are. Okay, I mean, what we see there is 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. And 12 and 10 are both symbolic. Both are pictures of fullness, fulfillment, perfection. So they see this 144,000 as the complete the complete redeemed people. They see the 144,000 as just another way, as we've seen through Revelation. John heard this, right, but turned and saw something else. Remember? We've we've seen that over and over, and we'll continue to see it. So he heard 144,000. He turns and sees a great multitude that no one can number. 
So, what do I think? I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> what do you think? You come tell me and we'll talk about it, okay? I mean, I, I have an opinion on this. I've, I've worked through some of these things. Um, some will hold, and, and one of the problems that you have with this list that we have here in the book of Revelation is that it's a very unique list. Look back at it. That list that we have here in Revelation 7 is unlike any other list of the tribes of Israel in all the Bible. There's not another list like this. Judah was the fourthborn, yet they're listed first. And many say, and I would agree, well, it's because the Messiah came from Judah. And so Judah's given prominence on this list. But others look at that list and say, well, wait a minute, Levi is included. Well, Levi wasn't included in the allotment of the land in the Old Testament. They were the priest. And God was their inheritance, not the land. But they're included in this list. Ephraim and Dan are included in the Old Testament list, but they're not included here. And some say Dan is not included because they were just so idolatrous and sinful. In fact, one of the things that, that was proclaimed to them there in Genesis 49 when the blessings are coming is, is, is Dan was called a serpent in the way. So they're not included in this list. Now, again, some theologians see that as significant. Others say, nah, it's not that big of a deal. None of the lists are the same. So study, read, see, see kind of where you come up with, what you come up with. Here's what is without dispute, okay? That this 144,000, literal or symbolic, that this 144,000 and these people who are here, whether they are just those of the Jewish race that are saved, and by the way, that's not all. Nobody says that's all of them. That There will be others come, even, even those who would hold to that futurist interpretation, say others will come to faith through the Great Tribulation. Here's what everybody agrees on. God is faithful to keep his covenant promises, and those who are sealed by him are safe in him. That's, that's the bottom line, okay? However you see this and whoever you see that, they are saved, they are sealed, and they are safe. They will stand in that great day. That's the picture. So that's, that's the 144,000. Now let's go back at the beginning and look at the text for just a second, all right? So he sees four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. And they're commanded not to let the wind blow, not to harm anything on the earth until God's people have been sealed. All right. So these angels, as we have seen and will see, angels are agents of God's judgment. Jesus in Matthew 24 talks often about how he will send his angels, his parables on the harvest, his parables on the, the net, his parables as he talks about what that end judgment's going to look like, talks about the Lord coming with his angels. So these angels are God's agents for that. The four corners of the earth, what is that? Well, it's not, the Bible doesn't say we live on a flat earth with four corners, all right? That's symbolic itself, like the four points of our compass. It's talking about the entirety of the earth. And the angels here are holding this wind back. And these four winds should remind us of the four horsemen that we saw earlier. It's this picture of a means of God's judgment. These winds blowing with destruction. Zechariah saw this in Zechariah 6. 
I read this when we were looking at the four horsemen, but just listen. In Zechariah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had a red horse, the second a black horse, the third white horses, the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. And then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves to the Lord of the earth. In Daniel chapter 7, this great churning sea, kind of a picture of the masses of humanity rebelling against God. And Daniel 7 saw the, in Daniel 7, he saw the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. So this is a picture of the means of God's judgment. And it's being held back. They're being told, not yet. One commentator said, and I think this is good, the winds have been held back to prevent their harmful activity as evidence of their rebellious and wicked nature. Meaning this, that creation is groaning. And even creation itself has been impacted by the fall. And tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis are just evidence of that fall. And the destructive nature of creation. So that's what's happening. But the question again is why? Why is this being held back? Why are these angels told to hold back the wind? And not even harm a tree. Until God's elect are sealed. Until God's servants are sealed. And it's for their sake. He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. Until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. We'll see this again in Revelation chapter 9, but we'll see the opposite side of it. All right? They were told not to harm the grass of the earth, nor any green plant, nor any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. So in Revelation 7, the seal protects us. In Revelation 9, those without the seal are being judged. All right? In Revelation chapter 14, And I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name, and his father's name was written on their foreheads. There's that number again. Were there just 144,000 there? Some would say, yeah. Interesting, though, some who see 144,000 in seven as literal don't see the 144,000 as literal later on. So, anyway... Over in Revelation chapter 22, I love this one, verse 4 and 5. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So this sealing is this mark that we belong to God. This seal means that his name is ours and we belong to him. And there's Old Testament pictures of this. In the book of Ezekiel, the seal that God put upon his people protected them from terrible judgment. Ezekiel chapter 9, starting in verse 4, the Lord said to him, Pass through the city through Jerusalem, through the Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. So the sins of Jerusalem had reached such a level that God was bringing judgment on them. And the mark was those who grieved over that sin. Those who had God's perspective and understood the grievances of what was being done. Verse 5. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eyes shall not spare 
and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, but touch no one on whom is the mark. And Ezekiel goes on to say, and begin at my sanctuary. So they begin with the elders who were before the throne, which I think is where Peter says judgment begins in the household of God. Starts here first. So the mark there in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel protected those from God's judgment. So those who have the mark, those who are in Christ, I think what we see later on in chapter 7, those who have washed their robes in the blood and have made them white, they have this seal, this mark on them. And it ultimately represents ownership. We belong to Him. And He has sealed us, okay? So Jerome read that passage out of Ephesians. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And having believed, you were marked with a seal. And what was that seal? The promised Holy Spirit. So I believe that's the seal that he's talking about here. Later on in in Ephesians 4.30, it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you were marked for the day of redemption. So there's this mark. There's this seal. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, Verse 22, he anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So the sealing is a mark of authenticity, okay? It's a mark of ownership. Those who are sealed belong to God. He he owns us. He protects us. He covers us. And his name will be on our foreheads, it says. What's the deal with that? Why, why foreheads? Later on, on the hands too. Well, many say, and I think this makes absolute sense, I think it's a, it's a very sound way to see this, is it's a reference back to Deuteronomy 6. It's a reference back to that greatest commandment that God gave His people, that Jesus reiterated, where we were told to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and with all of our strength. And we are to, command, we are to bind these commandments on our Forehead, it says. We're to wear them like frontlets between our eyes. So to wear the mark of God on our heads is Israel was to have God at the foremost in their thoughts. And they were to have their relationship with God at the front in their hands. So that's why that mark is on their hands. So this seal on our foreheads and on our hands, it's just this picture, not only of ownership, but of purpose. You get it? We belong to Him, and we have a purpose. We are His servants. We are His slaves. And we are to live for Him with all that we have and all that we are. And this is in contrast, guys, to what we're later going to see in the mark of the beast. Yeah, in the mark of the beast. In fact, here's where we see it in Revelation 13. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So there's this counterfeit but powerful entity that comes and presents himself in many of the same ways that Christ does and calls for the same obedience that God does and responds in what seems to be some kind of judgment that those who would not worship the beast were to be slain. Verse 16, and it causes all, both great and small, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that, they, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, that is, the name of the beast and the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. 
Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for the number, for it is the number of man and his number is 666. We'll get to that, okay? Here's the point. Those who follow the beast are marked accordingly. And those who follow the beast are allegiant to him. Their allegiance is seen, okay? Those who are marked live in allegiance to the one who makes the mark. And so later on, when they carry the mark of the beast, it's a symbol of loyalty to the enemy of God. Just as wearing the seal or the mark in Revelation 7 and these other passages is a seal of loyalty to the one who owns us and has bought us with his blood. So this, this seal, it's a beautiful picture of ownership. We belong to him. You are not your own. You're bought with a price, Paul writes. He shed his blood for us and has marked us, sealed us with his indwelling Holy Spirit. We belong to him. And we also then are his servants. That's who's marked. Mark those who are servants, he says. Sealed the servants of God. And literally it's the word slave. And so it was common in that day for a slave to be marked in some way with a mark of ownership. And here that same picture is those who belong to Christ. It's a picture of ownership and it's a picture of purpose. So how did, I've given you three words in your sermon notes by way of application. Three words. And I think it can be boiled down, these first eight verses, to that. Acceptance, assurance, and allegiance. Acceptance is this. There is coming a great day of wrath. But in the meantime, we are in days of mercy. We're in days where you have the opportunity to receive from the holy judge who has every reason to judge and condemn. That same holy judge has made way for us to be free from that condemnation and receive his gift of forgiveness. There's this great multitude coming later on in this chapter from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages and tongues, standing before the throne. They're clothed in white robes, a picture of righteousness, of cleansing, of cleansing, a picture of God's forgiveness. They're worshiping. They're crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The question is in this acceptance, will you be there? Have you trusted in Jesus? Surprise attack is not God's way. It's not. And every word we read here is a word of warning, but is also a word of invitation. God so loved you that He gave His only begotten Son. That if you would believe in Him, you would not perish but have everlasting life. That's his promise to those who will accept. Second word is assurance. Because we are sealed by God, we don't need a cave. We don't need a bunker. All right? We don't need to be digging pits in the ground and reinforcing them. Because if we are in Christ, if you are in Christ, who will stand in that great day of judgment? I will. And so will you. We will stand before that throne. We will not be crushed. We will stand. We will come through it. Over in Romans chapter 8, turn there with me for just a second. I've been reading through Romans 8 as I've been working through this. 
It's familiar, but I don't think we can ever read it enough and apply it enough in light of what we're seeing here in Revelation. Starting in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? And these things is all that he's been talking about really all the way through the book of Romans. But especially in chapter 8. The, the work that God has done in us through Christ by His Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit in us, the fact that we're heirs with Christ, the fact that we have this future glory looking forward to and, and none of the sufferings that come into our lives are wasted. None of them are accidental. All of them are working for us an eternal weight of glory. Verse 31, so what do we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us, Right? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he also with him not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall, and just fill in the blanks. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Shall pandemics? Shall political uprisings? Shall military wars? Shall anything separate us? No. No. For your sake we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Assurance, church. Assurance. That's what the sealing of God on us does. And then finally, allegiance. Because we are servants... We are slaves. I know that's not, a, a not, that's not a term that we use. It's not even a term that's appropriate to use lots of times. But in this case, in the biblical context, that's exactly what we are. We are His and His alone. He owns us. He has bought us with His blood. He has marked us as His. And so that allegiance means that that marking determines how we're to live, who we live for. And what that life looks like. Paul in Romans chapter 6 said, Thanks be to God, though you were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. And he goes on to say, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now pre present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. And because of that allegiance and that sealing that's on us, God, here's my heart for this day. Here's my heart for this meeting I'm about to go into, Lord. Here's my heart for this conversation I'm about to have. Here's my heart for this day of class. Here's my heart for this day in the office or in the plant. Love the Lord your God with all your soul. God, look deep into my heart. Right now, Lord, inspect my heart by your Holy Spirit. Show me that sin that's there, Lord, that's not in line with your holiness. Show me what needs to be confessed and repented of. And thank you that because I'm sealed with your Holy Spirit, I have your mark on me that if I'll confess that sin, you're faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me of my unrighteousness. Thank you for that. 
Love the Lord your God with all your soul and present that to Him. And love Him with all your strength, all your physicality. The members of your body that Paul talks about throughout the New Testament are your hands. God, here's my hands, use them. Here's my eyes, don't let them look where they shouldn't, use them. Here's my ears, let me hear what will build up. Let me hear what I should hear because I belong to you. Here's my feet, take me where you want me to go. It's really practical, isn't it? Our allegiance is lived out. In how we live and who we live for. Let's pray. Father, thank you today for your word. We may not know what the numbers mean. Lord, we may not know all of who that might include. But we know that those who have trusted in Christ are sealed and belong to you. And we thank you for that. Lord, what confidence, what hope, what assurance. Father, I pray again that if there's someone here who has not accepted the free gift of salvation that you offer in Christ, that right now, Lord, your Holy Spirit would speak to their heart, that they turn from their sin and confess Jesus as Lord. Lord, it is with our mouth that we confess. And I pray that with that mouth, Lord, they would confess that Jesus is Lord. And in their heart, they would believe that you raised him from the dead. And that, Lord, you'd do that work of salvation there. All this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.